0: about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening, once again, with step number 26 on discernment. And if you're following along in the text, we are on page 197, picking up with 55 towards the bottom of the page. And uh, John will be taking us through a, a whole series of aspects of discernment that touch upon the the spiritual life, uh, illness, our internal disposition in performing certain uh, acts of virtue, our specific intentions, uh, a mixing of vice and virtue within us at times that we have to be attentive to because sometimes uh, we overlook the the presence of a vice uh, even while we are pursuing another virtue. Uh, how we deal with and understand prayers that are unanswered. And, uh, and then uh, the times that demons also will withdraw or seemingly withdraw uh, from us in the spiritual battle, often to uh, provoke a kind of carelessness on our part. So a lot of really important uh, information here in regards to the, uh, discerning uh, various aspects of the spiritual life that I think will be helpful to us all. So again, number 55 on page 197 begins, when our good and all gracious Lord and masters sees people too lazy in their exercises, he lays their flesh low with sickness and asceticism with less toil. And sometimes it also cleanses the soul from evil thoughts or passions. So it's an interesting way of looking at illness and asceticism with less toil, that when one is lazy and not being disciplined in the spiritual life, sometimes illness will humble the mind and the body in a similar way that fasting or vigils might do. And at times this can awaken within the soul, uh, the, the need to struggle, uh, with the passions, but even to cleanse the passions on on some level, to bear with the suffering of a particular illness can lead a person to cling to God. They experience in their physical poverty a humbling that leads them to prayer. And again, you know, this often we don't look at illness in this kind of way. Even the smaller kind of illnesses that we might ex- experience with colds and the flu. Uh, but, uh, it can be important, uh, to do so in order that we continue to pray during periods such as this, and that we don't fall into, uh, an even, uh, greater carelessness that sometimes we can, uh, spend that time in bed, you know, especially as available as television or Netflix and all those other things can be for, for us with cell phones and iPads that. Uh, those days can drift by, where people uh, are not attentive to God at all, and rather than seeing in this illness uh, a kind of call to to uh, engage in prayer in a deeper way, that God is the source of healing for us, and not only spiritually but all of our physical ailments as well. And sometimes we don't. Uh, see that or aren't attentive to that we will run to the doctor quick quick enough or call the doctor quick, quickly enough but uh often we we don't think to call on god immediately when we find ourselves laid low number 56 all that happens to us seen or unseen can be taken by us in a good or a passionate or some middle disposition. I saw three brethren punished. One was angry, one was without grief, and the third reaped the fruit of great joy. So he, he goes through this process a number of times in this step, of uh, both with intentions and things like dispositions, that a person can embrace something very well, uh, even something like punishment uh, that in such a way that it opens their eyes to something important about the spiritual life. And so it can take joy even in something uh, as difficult as that, whereas others, you know, will moan and groan about it. And so there will be no fruit uh, received from it or nothing learned as well. And so being attentive to our disposition, how we are embracing uh, things in the moment on a day-to-day basis is something important for us. So we have a tendency to let time pass us by, or, or we focus on the future, on things that we have to get done in a certain amount of time, and we let anxiety uh, or expectations that we place upon ourselves or that others place upon us drive us rather than living in the moment, simply being attentive to the task at hand, both spiritually and physically, and uh, being mindful of God. And, uh, and so all these kinds of dispositions are, are very important for us to be attentive to. Similarly, in number 57, I've seen farmers who were casting the same seeds on the earth It each had its own special purpose. One was thinking of paying his debts. Another wanted to get rich. Another wished to honor the Lord with his gifts. Another's aim was to get praise for his good work from the passers-by on the way of life. Another desired to annoy his neighbor who was envious of him. And another did not want to be reproached by people for idleness. So even in a worldly way, we can act in such a way that we are looking for a particular response from from others. That we want to be seen in a certain light, or even as we hear in this list, they give us. We want to annoy people with our particular actions. We want to achieve a certain goal, even if it is a negative one. And uh, so similarly. Uh, in regards to our, our virtues, we have to test the in, intention there. Why is it that we are doing the things that we are doing? And uh, and so he goes on to say, here are the names of those seeds cast to the earth by the farmers, fasting, vigil, alms, services, and the like. Let our brethren in the Lord carefully test their intentions. So why is it? that we take up these things? Is it uh, to give ourselves over to prayer? Uh, And do we do that secret behind closed doors that only our Father who's in heaven sees it? Uh, This is a perfect thing to consider, especially as we are approaching Lent. And uh, if you remember in in the Latin rite, the gospel for the day is exactly that. If you fast Wash your face so that others don't see that you're fasting. Uh, For if you do, you have your reward in full. Uh, But do so in secret, and then your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so at the very beginning of the holy season, uh, we're challenged by the gospel uh, to look at the intentions, but also to keep them hidden from the eyes of others. That all that is important is that we do these things with love and the desire for God, and that, that he sees that. Okay, number 58. He begins to speak here about the, the mixing of virtue and vice within us, and being able to distinguish the two. In drawing water from a well, Sometimes without noticing it, we bring up a frog with the water. And so in acquiring the virtues, we often get involved in the vices that are imperceptibly entwined with them. The kind of thing I mean is that gluttony is entangled with hospitality, lust with love, cunning with discernment, malice with thoughtfulness, duplicity, procrastination, laziness, contradiction, willfulness and disobedience, with meekness, contempt of instruction with silence, I'm sorry, contempt of instruction with silence, conceit with joy, indolence with hope, harsh judgment with love again, despondency and sloth with stillness, acerbity with chastity, familiarity with humility, and behind them all, as a general salve, or rather poison, follows vainglory. So behind all of the good things that we do, or the virtues that we are seeking to practice, can be merely vainglory, the desire to be seen by others or to see ourselves in a positive light. Uh, But you can see what he's saying here, that some of the ones uh like indolence with hope that we can be lazy and tell ourselves in our mind that we're placing all of our hope in god students are famous for this you know i won't study but i'll i'll pray that god will help me through the exam and so somehow hope that by osmosis you know he'll uh, put the knowledge in our minds and uh And so so it goes with all the the things that he mentions here, cunning with discernment. So discernment is, you know, seeking to know the mind of God and to embrace the will of God uh, and arises out of humility as a fruit of humility. Uh, But cunning can mimic it, you know, that we are being very attentive to the details of the circumstances uh, around us and the things that people do their patterns what they say and uh and we can be manipulative and uh calculating in order to get what we want even on a spiritual level that there are certain things or certain paths that we would want to open up for us that we would use this natu- natural gift if you would want to describe it that way or natural ability of cunning of a cunning mind uh, of being psychologically astute to know how to manipulate the situation and others to give us what we want them to give us or to open up a, a door for us that we want them to open up and this might have nothing to do with the will of god it might have nothing to do with our sanctification and yet these two can be very much alike uh, and, and it can seem as though uh, we are thinking things through in a godly way when it's really ego that is driving us and that ego that is our lord at that moment driving us rather than our listening to god who often speaks to us in a still small voice in subtle ways and perhaps even draws us to things that are very humble humble in their nature and don't gratify uh, intellectually or personally or use certain gifts that we would desire, but really are, are meant to bring something forth from our heart uh, that is more important, our capacity to love others and to love them as they are, uh, rather than to see them as a means to get, again, getting what we want which is to be held in high esteem by others. Cindy Moran writes, I remember a few things, a few times the night before a huge exam, I slept with the school book under my pillow, right? That's always uh, <clears throat> the student's uh, form of, of preparation or what ends up happening as they try to do an all-nighter. Uh, I could never understand that. I never did an all-nighter through college or grad school because it never made sense to me as if somehow you could cram all that in your mind and then be exhausted the next day and do well on an exam Uh, that causes too too much anxiety uh for me anyways getting far from the point here but you see what john is doing here for us that uh the subtlety in our discernment and being both psychologically and spiritually astute to the simple movements of, of the mind and the heart becomes very important and is only only emerges through deep prayer, silence and solitude where we are listening to God. Number 59, we should not be distressed if in asking the Lord for something we remain for a time unheard it would have pleased the lord if all men in a single moment had become dispassionate however his foreknowledge told him that this world this would not be for their good so the idea that you know in an instant you know why doesn't god give this to me or to others uh, uh, in such a way that we just have this gift. And uh, because part of the problem is is that when we think that we can leap up this ladder or uh, when something seems to come naturally to us, that we often will attribute it to ourselves. We will fall into vainglory or that we will become uh, careless or neglectful over the course of time. We all know, I think, the things that are hard won, where we sweat blood for them, we hold them to be more precious and we guard and protect them as being more valuable, uh, as opposed to that which is just thrown in our laps. We often will take those things for granted. And the same can be true in the spiritual life, that God in his foreknowledge and wisdom sees what is best for us in terms of our again sanctification and that might mean waiting years to receive a response uh, for something that we've prayed for it also tells us to be careful what you pray for you know god let me give you my heart completely without complaining and with no desire whatsoever And for, you know, self gratification, and then boom, God gives you that. And the next thing you're doing, you're moaning the blues, because, you know, he's put you in a position where you have to trust him completely. And uh, so sometimes the prayers that are answered can be uh, a frightening thing, too. So we want to be thoughtful about what we're asking for, and if we really desire it. Within our own hearts. Even Augustine at least had the, the sense to say, you know, God give me chastity, but not yet. Uh, you know, at least he knew himself well enough uh, that uh, he wasn't, he didn't desire it. Number sixty. All who ask and do not obtain their request from God are denied for one of the following reasons. Because they ask at the wrong time, or because they ask unworthily and vaingloriously, or because if they receive, if they receive, they would become conceited, or finally, because they would become negligent after obtaining their request. So some of the things that we've already mentioned here, in fact, most of them we've, we've already talked about, Uh, But unworthily and vaingloriously, we hear this in James, you you ask but you do not receive because you ask wrongly, you ask to satisfy yourself in your own appetites. Uh, So I believe that's in the letter of James. And, uh, and so we can ask for so many different things again to satisfy one kind of appetite or another and not really have it come for a, from a desire for God or for holiness. Number 61. No one, I think, would doubt that the demons and passions leave the soul, either for a time or entirely, but few know the reasons why they go away from us. So people from experience can often see that there's been a change that they aren't afflicted uh as much at one time in comparison to another that a wave of thoughts or temptations is not coming upon them day after day but john says few have the ability to discern why that is true why the demons might withdraw for a period of time and uh We might think that it's because we've made some spiritual gain. And on the demon's part, it might because they see an opening there for a a vulnerability or a vulnerability that will allow them to uh, initiate a greater fall. If they open us up to uh, a kind of negligence because they ease up on afflicting us. Most of the saints seem to be suspicious if life is going too well. If you look closely at their writing, if it doesn't involve the cross, or if they're not being tempted severely, then they, they tend to ask why, what's going on, what am I not seeing here? And that might seem to be a rather negative way of viewing life. But I think when we realistically understand who it is that we are uh, in battle with, it it should be the natural response for us you know what why am i not being embattled if i'm and warred against if i'm engaged in a spiritual warfare what's what's taking place here is the enemy using a different tactic in the battle number 62 some of the faithful and even of the unfaithful, have been deserted by all the passions except one, and that one has been left as a paramount evil which fully takes the place of all the others, for it is so harmful it can even cast down from heaven. So we know exactly what this is, that it is pride, that the demons can be willing to allow us to... Uh, in an unimpeded way make great gains in the spiritual life and virtue if they know that they can make us fall into the depths of hell through pride that we will uh, at some point attribute you know that virtue to ourselves or we will glory in it rather than giving the glory to God and gratitude to God and then uh, experience some great fall in our life from which we might not rise in faith. And so that, you know, I think this is why, you know, you find even the grace of saints saying, you know, humility has to be what we cling to until we enter into the grave that we attribute all things to the grace of God, that yes, there is this synergy that we've talked about between the human will and grace, but it's primarily by the action of God's grace that we grow in virtue and are protected from vice, and we never want to lose sight of that. Number 63. The material of the passions is destroyed when consumed by divine fire. And while this material is being uprooted and the soul purified, the passions all retire. That is, if the man himself does not attract them again by worldly habits and indolence. So if one removes all impediments to responding to the grace of God, and uh and one opens the mind and the heart to him with a kind of constancy and prayer the purification can be so deep and profound that uh that a person is no longer attracted to the things that give rise to the passions and the only thing that can undo that is again uh, a kind of neglect or laziness, that we would allow ourselves uh, to drift back towards the things that once had us in their firm grip. And uh, again, thinking that we, we won't uh, be pulled into them like we had in the past, because we've achieved a certain level of freedom. And again, the the evil one counts on this, that we will uh, step up, as it were, and stick a toe in the water, you know, thinking, okay, and I've done that, I'll do that, and I've done that 10 times, and I haven't been harmed by it, so I must be free from it. Uh, I'm not moved by this passion any longer, so I don't have to worry about what I expose myself to, what I listen to on the radio, what I watch on television, or, you know, things along those lines are where my mind, mind goes. And the evil one might let that go on a hundred times where nothing seems to affect us in regards to virtue. And then the 101st time, boom, where we we fall and fall greatly, where a thought, an idea cannot, we cannot get out of our mind, or the imagination is stirred, fantasy takes hold, and we find ourselves in in that grip again. Marine Wright, oh, there's a couple of comments here. Walter first. Uh, So the dark night of the senses or dryness of faith is a good sign uh, in that Christ is asking more of us or testing us. Yeah, well, right, drawing us further along in the faith. And it's often experienced as being something that's uh, very painful, as we've talked about, because we aren't receiving the consolation that we receive from certain spiritual practices uh that we've engaged in and have served us very well that as god begins to move us to walking uh in this greater purity of faith and if you remember john of the cross who you're referring to here uh speaks of faith as a dark obscure knowing it's a knowing and an experiential knowledge of god but beyond the limits of our intellect understanding imagination and so it's experienced as a kind of darkness and it's hard to discern because God is actually drawing us into a deeper intimacy with him and will illuminate the soul uh, in accord with his own will and wisdom uh, at some point but what is difficult is for the soul to continue on in the spiritual battle in this kind of dryness where they don't experience God or they experience only this kind of darkness and lack of consolation in the spiritual life. They continue to pray and they continue to be vigilant, but uh, that they're being tested certainly on a very deep level in regards to virtue. And I think the, the vice that one can give oneself over to at this point would be discouragement or despondency that Our attachment to uh, consolation uh, can be so deep that we want to reproduce it. And when that is removed from us and we're being called to love God simply because he is worthy of that love, not because of what we gain on an emotional level from it. uh, When a person begins to experience that, they can think that God has abandoned them or that they are displeasing in some way, or get, they begin to question the value of the ascetic life. And Maureen writes, what is the time frame? if one thinks of this as a long journey or one could be discouraged? Um, well, the spiritual life as a whole is a marathon
0: what I meant by that was there's a lot of people that when they've gone into the church, because I've met a lot of them, and they'll be just there yeah, for a short time. It's just, it, it's the impossible. It's like, I want to be a doctor, but this is going to take me 40 years to become that.
1: That's right.
0: So yeah. that's what I'm thinking about. It, when he's speaking in this, it's he's looking at this as a lifetime journey to as we go along, you know, like going up the mountain and you're going up and certain parts get more difficult. But that you got to keep running on the running the race, because I've had so many people that they're just like it's too. I could never obtain this.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think in in the spiritual life, say, and for example, in praying the Jesus prayer, that it might take decades for that to become so rooted within the mind and the heart that it becomes like breathing. But it doesn't mean that one will not experience or begin to experience the fruit of praying the Jesus prayer and being more mindful and remembering God throughout the course of the day in and through it within a relatively short period of time. So it's not as though God fails to give us consolation in order to draw us along in the spiritual life. Uh, But the perfecting of the virtues and the perfecting of this constancy in prayer can take a long time and there can be ups and downs uh, in in that process as well. And so a kind of endurance is needed in perseverance. Make sure the scriptures say, make sure your endurance carries you all the way to the end. And... uh, and oftentimes, when we go through those difficult periods, which can sometimes last for a relatively long period of time, we can become discouraged and lose that endurance. And so it's, this is why it's important to read people like John of the Cross or the Fathers that tell us that we can go through all these kind of things where we have to be attentive to our own dispositions and intentions as well as the actions of the evil one in order that we might not become discouraged and give up that we might understand what we are facing in the spiritual battle and not flee from it or think that we've wasted our time the harder thing is when there is darkness you know you hear people like mother teresa who who seem to be this person who exuded the joy of the kingdom and worked also tirelessly in uh, uh, caring for the poor and the dying, and also prayed constantly before you know the blessed sacrament, and uh, but yet experienced uh, you know. An, An incredibly long period of darkness, where she had no consolation in the spiritual life. No one would have known that from looking uh, at her, and I think it was only through the writing of her spiritual director after she passed away that we come to knowledge of that. But uh, this is part of the darkness that we we often experience, and you know there are those saints you know, I think part of this is the wisdom of God and the providence of God, what is best for the soul. And uh, when you look at a person like Therese of Lisieux, she died what, 24, I believe it was, and uh, went through a horrible illness, uh, tuberculosis, and uh, and, you know, there was no pain relief through all of that it was horrendous but there was also a kind of telescoping of the development of virtue within her and her understanding of the things of god of her capacity for discernment for love to understand the nature of the love of god so much that it came comes forth that it came forth in her writing in such a way that it's had this enormous impact upon one generation after another and that her intercession has as well you know there's a hidden life as a carmelite nun and yet god worked in this extraordinary way in this very short period of time and what why things played out in her life in that fashion we don't know i mean it's part of the mystery of the human person but also the action of God's grace in a person's life uh, in light of their response to him. So, and again, I think this is probably why it's a good reason for us to have spiritual direction, you know, through those periods where it is very hard to see what's going on in our life and why we're experiencing the things we are. Uh, Kate writes, there are some spiritual writings that take the form of a colloquy. Father Gaston Courtois, for example. Uh-huh. Somebody's been reading my post. Uh-huh. I-, I love him too. If uh, He's just an extraordinary writer. Uh, how does this fit with the dark knowing of faith that you mentioned? The writers seem to have such a tangible intimacy with our Lord. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I think I love and didn't wasn't always aware of these writings, but I came to love them over the course of time when I began to read a book called Divine Intimacy, uh, and within it, uh, it follows sort of the liturgical calendar and, in particular, the writings of uh, especially the great Carmelites and. Uh, but the final section of each reflection is this kind of colloquy of a dialogue between the soul and god and they have this kind of beauty and capture uh this desire for god longing for god that uh we are created with and that we are to foster within the the mind and the heart that we aren't stoics as christian men and women and uh, the Psalms kind of do the same thing as well because they speak with this similar kind of passion and longing or in the sorrow of the individual. Uh, We can often find in the words of David uh, something that begins our own prayer for us and leads us to be able to call out to God in a similar way. Father Gaston Courtois was early 20th century and uh, a priest, but he did a lot of retreats for women's religious communities, and uh, they've just published uh, a book of his, a selection of writings that is a very fine introduction uh, to his works, but uh, you can still find a lot of his writings uh, through Amazon or used books uh, that are just magnificent. Uh, The name of the Book is come on, mom. You ha- you have it. Uh, I can't hear you. You have to take yourself off mute. When the Lord speaks to the heart, or when the Lord speaks to the heart, right? I think that's the title of the book. If somebody wants to look it up, but just superb in a, l- a little reflection each day in this colloquy form, and I think this is one of the means that God draws us forward. Uh, Again, when we can find words in this, our words for ourselves in the saints that encourage us and draw us forward in the spiritual battle, that they become words of encouragement for us and solace, a kind of healing balm for us when we are experiencing darkness. So I would highly recommend Gaston Courvois. Yeah, when the Lord speaks to the heart, right. That's it, very fine work. Okay, let's see, where do I leave off here? Number 64, demons leave us of their own accord so as to lead us to carelessness and then suddenly carry off our wretched soul. So this is what I was speaking about, that they will allow for this carelessness uh, and allow it, they're patient in their own way, uh, in the sense of allowing us to flirt with sin. And uh, and the fathers often speak of it as, I um, uh, forget the word that they use when we you know, sort of begin to communicate with the temptation a little bit. We linger with it and begin to commune with it on a certain level. And uh, they'll allow us to do that with certain thoughts for a period of time until it takes hold. Number 65. I know another way in which those beasts slink off. They depart after the soul has thoroughly acquired the habits of vice and is its own betrayer and enemy. Infants are an example of what has been said, for when weaned from their mother's breast, from long-standing habit, they suck their fingers. Isn't that an exa- interesting? Little example that you know that when they see a habit of vice firmly entrenched then they can depart because we are uh wounding ourselves that uh and he makes reference to this earlier you know they'll look in on us every once in a while to check to see what's going on there but they don't have to be constantly afflicting us because we've embraced the virtue i'm sorry the vice so fully And this image of a child, you know, having been having this habit of being nursed, of fed, you know, at its, you know, when it desires to to eat, that it then will carry over into something like sucking one's fingers, that there's a habit there, even though there's no nourishment coming there, that the habit uh, is firmly in place. And so, for us, you know that once a habit is deeply rooted, we we will go back. It's like muscle memory, you know. We'll snap back to certain forms of behavior uh, just because they are, are familiar to us, uh, almost without thinking. Number sixty-six. I know also a fifth kind of spiritual dispassion which comes from great simplicity and praiseworthy innocence. For on such people, help is justly bestowed by God, who saves the upright of heart and imperceptibly rids them of all vice, just as infants, when undressed, are quite unaware of it. So there are these simple and innocent souls that... Have no attraction to those things, or and are so drawn to God and that which is good, that uh, that God, without their even uh, being aware of it, will purify their heart, that He will respond to that simplicity and that innocence by an even greater outpouring of uh, of grace. It's a quite kind of a beautiful thought that there are these innocent souls that through their formation, not only uh, it can be through natural temperament to a natural virtue that grace builds upon, but maybe also through formation that they've been taught to love uh, others and to look at the world in a certain way that they have this kind of simplicity and innocence, they haven't become jaded, and they haven't become self-focused. And so God's grace built, adds and builds upon that to the point of perfecting, perfecting them without their being aware of it. Are the uh, other four kinds of dispassion in this chapter I think he's mentioned them on at one point or another. Uh, I'd I'd have to go back and look at that now that you say that. Uh, But uh, I'm I'm certainly certain I can find them a list of them uh, for for the next time. Let's see, number sixty-seven. Vice or passion is not originally planted in nature, for God is not the creator of passions. But there are in us many natural virtues from him, among which are certainly the following. Mercy, for even the pagans are compassionate. Love, for even dumb animals often weep at the loss of one another. Faith, for we all give birth to it of ourselves. Hope for we lend and sail and so looking to the gain. So if, as has been shown, love is a natural virtue in us and is the bond and fulfillment of the law, then it follows that the virtues are not far from nature. And those who plead their inability to practice them ought to be ashamed. This is reminiscent of scripture as well. And Paul speaks of it that there are we've been endowed with natural virtue that prepares us to receive what comes to us from Christ, uh, to receive that which is supernatural, and uh, and not to take hold of this is our responsibility, our failure. And so John says one should be ashamed. That we don't take hold of the good the natural good that god has created us with and that he prepares us uh, in order in order that we might embrace the greater gifts uh, that he desires to give us so we don't use those natural virtues in such a way as to to prepare the mind and the heart to receive that that greater love Uh, This is an interesting little uh, saying, because there was a disagreement among the fathers, whether the passions uh, were something we were created with, or if they uh, emerged because of sin. And I I fall with John on this, because I think there's a different, we we confuse, when when we think of passion, we think of desire. And so I think we confuse the the two. Uh, I think we are created as desiring beings, as those who for whom only God can satisfy what is incomplete within us. So that God has created us for Himself, and so there always has to be this desire and longing within us—a kind of holy eros—to uh, move us forward in the pursuit of virtue. And so we are desiring beings. But the passions, as John and as the fathers describe them, emerge when sin enters into our life and distorts our natural appetites and desires and refocuses them upon ourselves and uh, the uh, satisfaction of our baser desires. And so I think he's the one who's right here, that they emerge and are only, because of our sin, and are only purified. We reach this level of dispassion, which the fathers call a passion, a passionless passion, that we are freed from the things that lead us to focus upon the self in a sinful way, in order that our love for God might be fully directed for him, that our desire might be fully directed toward God and the things of God. So I think this is where, I think John is actually uh, more accurate here. I I understand why the uh, others think what they do, because they're trying to protect something there about our understanding of the human person. But I think we can do that without... Seeing the passions as something that we are created with. Because that would be akin to saying that God created that which is sinful. Okay, any thoughts about that before we move on? Okay. Number sixty-eight. Above nature are chastity, freedom from anger, humility. Prayer, vigil, fasting, constant compunction. Some of them, men teach us, others, angels. And of others, the teacher and giver is God, the word himself. So interesting, you know, we have all these natural virtues that we are created with. But there are some things that only come by the grace of God that we aren't capable of by that natural virtue, or by our own strength, or by uh, our own will that we have to rely upon God because of our struggle with sin in order to rise above the things that would pull us away from them. So purity of heart, freedom from anger, humility... You know, all all of these things and their like has to come from our relying more and more upon the grace of God. Okay. Claire, there for what John is saying?
0: Okay, very
1: good. Number 69. When confronted by evils, we should choose the least. For instance, it often happens that we are standing in prayer and brothers come to us and we have to do one of two things, either to stop praying or to grieve the brother by leaving him without an answer. Love is greater than prayer because prayer is a particular virtue but love embraces all the virtues. Very important thing to understand uh that love trumps all and uh and so if we are in our room praying uh, for example priest and the doorbell rings and somebody wants to go to confession that what you you are taught is to immediately get up from your prayers and, and to run to the door to hear that confession And the idea behind this is that, as St. Philip said it, you leave Christ for Christ. That running to the door to serve another in love is not, you're not losing anything. You're actually acting upon the love that is received in and through the prayer and in the way that God would desire. So leave Christ for Christ, I think, is always a, a good little phrase to remember uh, when we sort of come up against something where we've set aside time for prayer and somebody asks something from us at that inconvenient, most inconvenient of times. And there will be a part of us that wants to say, no, I'm, I'm busy now, you know, and uh, and it doesn't even have to be that we are praying. It can be just that we're resting or we're reading or something along those lines. And so this, uh, this thought, leave Christ for Christ, I think it just points us in that right direction. It makes it ever so clear. So yes, Michael Hinckley, that is Philip Neary. at least that's what i've been told a lot of uh, a lot of sayings are attributed to multiple saints there but the grace of god uh go i is philip nary as well although that's been attributed to a lot of different saints suzanne hello hello
0: yeah hello um Uh, In in my recent, you know, several-month investigation of the Desert Fathers, this is the most confusing thing for me about the passions because I'm very steeped in the Roman Church's explanation and and instruction on that. And if you go back to um, the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve had preternatural gifts. Which seemed to me to support this miracle of human nature, which is body and spirit in one substance, which to, which they're really not supposed to be put together, and that those preternatural gifts were were necessary in a sense for us to carry, for the spirit to govern the soul, and for the for the spirit to deal with the body, because there's an animal nature there. And and so um, our Lord had passions, our Lord had anger, uh, he had weeping. The passions to me seem to be part of human nature, but it's sin mm. that disorders them. So anyway, I just wanted to say this is difficult for me because I see it in Isaac the Syrian and I get confused. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Okay.
1: Emotion is different than passions, too that passions are habitual sins. So anger in and of itself is not sinful. It's a response to a certain reality and often uh, directs us to some truth. For example, injustice in particular and arises and is given to us through the of faculty uh, that we when we see sin within ourselves or we see temptation coming to us we will become incensed and strike it down swiftly knowing that it's not from God and would pull us away from God and uh, what our Lord is seeing in the temple is a profound injustice that they were fleecing the poor who were coming to worship God and we've talked a little bit about this before that Uh, You know, as they would come to the temple, they would uh, have to use the temple coinage. And so they would have to uh, exchange their money for what could allow them to buy uh, the sacrifices, the animals that they would need in order to offer sacrifice. And of course, that would be that was being done at a rate that was exorbitant and so it was fleecing the poor and our lord the the temple was to be a place uh, this was the 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 section of the the of the gentiles there anyone could come into this area and the, they were to be a light to the nations and here as in this gathering space at the temp in the temple there was this fleecing of the poor that was taking place And not only that, that they weren't allowed to bring in their own animals for sacrifice, that they had to purchase these unblemished animals only that were available through the temple, again, at an exorbitant price. So if poor people were coming to worship God and to offer sacrifice to God, they were being taken advantage of. And so our Lord, in response to this injustice, overturns the temple. Because they've turned, uh, and he will do the same for us now that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that they've made a place that is to be a house of prayer, a den of thieves. And that story in the gospel comes to us with an even greater fierceness, knowing what we have become, that we are temples of God the Most High, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And uh, How is it that we treat those gifts that we've received from the very hand of God, the Holy Eucharist, the gift of the Holy Spirit? Uh, But when we jump back, you mentioned Adam and Eve, that they weren't subject, as we were, to concupiscence. That the temptation that they experienced was very much what our Lord experienced in the desert a temptation directed at their self-identity. And so the evil one directs the temptation precisely at their humanity. The take of the fruit of the tree, eat. Your eyes will be open and you will know for yourself good and evil. No, you will experience for yourself good and evil and you will become like gods. And so you will no longer need God, you will no longer have to be obedient to, to God, you will no, know it all for yourself. And they succumb to the illusion. And it's at that moment, then, that w- what are the passions begin to emerge. They they who would be gods could suddenly no longer control even their their natural desires and appetites. And they have to hide themselves from from each other they have to clothe them, clothe themselves uh, and become ashamed because of how their vision of self and the world had become distorted and we see the same kind of temptation directed towards christ uh, after the fasting in the desert all directed to the humanity that he embraced in humility so he comes out hungry so you know take the stones change them into bread cast off this humanity in its poverty and in its hunger and miraculously change the stones into bread or fling yourself down cast off that humanity in all of its weakness fling it down from the uh, yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple because what we are told in the scriptures that the angels themselves will come and keep you from dashing your foot against the stone or take what is by yours by divine right anyways. Uh, and uh, rather than embrace again the, the poverty that you've taken upon yourself. And unlike Adam and Eve, he does not succumb to the delusion. And in fact, it only responds with the scripture man does not eat by bread alone and so forth and so i see what, what you're saying but i think there is a consistency in what the fathers write and what they say and their understanding of human anthropology and psychology that has been consistent over you know you know over these centuries and uh, and that makes it consistent, I think then with what St. John is saying here too, about the passions. They emerge as a result of the fall, of a turning away from God. All that is natural, all that is God given to us becomes distorted. And the passions emerge when th- then that distortion becomes something habitually, deep, You know deeply rooted that we are turning away from god and toward towards the self rather than allowing those desires to lead us to love god and to love others with a kind of freedom so i don't know if that addresses all of your concerns and certainly we're coming to the end of the time here but we can certainly come back to it uh because we're, that was
0: a great answer. I really appreciate that, and I know there's depth in the fathers. I know because right. I've been benefiting. That that one that just that one thing. I just have to. Mm-hmm. I just have to live with it. I think a little for for a time.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it took me thirty years to sort of because <laughs> there was a point where I thought John was wrong. You know, but, and so I've gone back and forth over it myself and until reading like Isaac too, and spending time with it and seeing, you know, why why they are saying the things that they are and understanding also that it arises out of experience. That they, this is, these aren't abstract ideas for them as they are often for for us. They knew experientially, this was true because of having engaged in the battle, spiritual battle, all this time. They knew both the working of the evil one, but also the working of God's grace with a kind of clarity. One final comment here from David Swiderski. I have been reviewing some courses for work on emotional intelligence. And it's interesting, some of the information on neuroplasticity, plasticity, I'm sorry. Uh, I keep thinking how this research could learn so much from the desert fathers. and neuroplasticity, they often talk about the trigger leading to emotion leading to the to an action and receptivity creating behavior. Right. I think so too. I, I think they the desert fathers are incredibly astute, psychologically, spiritually, in every way, in terms of their understanding of how the human mind, works and uh, I feel the same way having studied psychoanalysis I think my goodness that they, they they understood this with far greater depth than what modern how modern psychology approaches so many of the things that that afflict us and it's because we have become so unmoored I think from that spiritual tradition in its fullness is along with the anthropology and psychology that goes along with it, that we're almost insecure in engaging the world. In fact, the church did not engage psychologically, did not engage in this kind of discussion. And maybe it was incapable at this point because it had already had become unmoored from the Desert Fathers and their writings. But when Freud you know came to uh, prominence in his in his theories, you know th- there was a kind of brilliance, there insight clinically, but he was an atheist. And so any kind of dialogue, you know fell fell apart at that point. And uh, so we weren't a part of that discussion when we had most the most to bring to it which is the sad thing that what we have in the Desert Fathers is so rich, so beautiful that it could bring such deep healing to people on in, who struggle with so many different things. And most of the world is unaware of it. And most Christians are unaware of it. So all wonderful thoughts tonight and we'll have to stop there we're at eight thirty-five, and we can pick it up next time uh because uh, the, these are all wonderful thoughts and i think when it comes down to understanding you know these things about ourselves it's worth spending the time okay why don't we close as always with you, our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.